Welcome to Adjusting Frequencies, a Cornell Media Guild podcast. I'm Christopher Morales. Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing well. My guest today is Warren Kurtzman, class of 87. Warren is the president of Coleman Insights in North Carolina, but before reaching a successful career in media research, he was spending his days as a DJ at WVBR. We had a chance to connect right after the first Cornell Media Guild reunion event earlier this summer. Warren shares some of his most memorable moments on air leading up to his role as general manager and president in his junior and senior year. As general manager, he remembers working with the late great John B. Hill, and while he spared Mark Paykoff for comments made about him in an earlier episode, Warren would like to remind a certain someone that you still owe him. Stick around and find out who that may be. Most recently, Warren has been helping us fulfill a few shifts on WVBR, finding no issues adjusting from a top 40 to our alternative format. You can follow him on Twitter at WarrenWVBR to find out his next shift. Also, don't forget to check out the newly launched WVBR shop. People are still raving about the one-stop shop to get your favorite WVBR, CornellRadio.com, and Electric Buffalo Records merchandise. I was still scrolling through it last night and couldn't resist buying a retro t-shirt and coffee mug. You have to see it for yourself, available only at WVBR.com forward slash shop. Finally, WVBR continues to grow its podcast network with its latest show called Black Voices on the Hill. This podcast is centered on black lives, stories, and experiences at Cornell and the greater Ithaca region, hosted by Daniel James II, a junior in the ILR school. The first episode was released yesterday, and I highly encourage you to check it out at wvbr.com forward slash black voices or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here's today's interview. Mr. Warren Kurtzman, thank you so much for joining me on Adjusting Frequencies, a Cornell Media Guild podcast. As you know, the rundown is that I want to interview different alumni uh, from over the years and talk about their experiences, certainly how it has applied their career going forward, and ultimately just having a good time talking and sharing some stories. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Christopher. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, I'm happy to see you as well. We were able to organize this after a second announcement from the reunion that we did with all the other alumni and some of the current day student leaders. What were your actions to the reunion? Did you see any uh, familiar faces, any, any faces you haven't seen in a long time you were really excited to hear from? Yeah, I thought it was a, a great event. Um, I thought it was a great effort to uh, do some additional outreach with alumni. Um, there were definitely some people there who I don't recall being really involved with the radio station or, or the guild in recent years. So it was great to see a lot of um, faces I hadn't seen in a while and uh, also see some faces that I do get to see pretty regularly since I have stayed remain, uh, since I have remained involved with the guild. Uh, I would have liked to have seen a few more people from my era, but uh, overall it was just a, it was a great event. It really was. Everybody's a critic. Even with this podcast, I get emails every other day saying, hey, I would love to get you know a few more people from my era on your show. <laughs> and I think what people forget is the show's very young. I think I only have a handful of episodes out there. We're getting there. I certainly want the interviews. So I invite anybody to reach out. But that's really awesome. It, it was great to see you there as well. Um, I've been able to you know, meet with you over the years, whether it was in person, you were visiting for symposium, or I remember last fall, I believe we had a conversation about, you know, radio ratings um, and, and, you know, Nielsen out of the, out of the region and, and figuring out what can we do to grow and know that people are interacting with us. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about your heydays, though. So I believe you were involved with the Guild back in 83 through 87, correct? That's right. Did you have any uh, particular roles around the station that you were really proud to tell about? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was really proud of almost everything that I did in the four years that I was there. Um, I did a lot, starting as an overnight DJ, like a lot of people did at that uh, period of time. Um, I was the station's promotions director for uh, a year as a sophomore. And then I was the general manager and president of the guild for two years as a junior and senior. So um, I even had two weeks where I was uh, co-program director with Tom Pullman. So um, I, I did a lot at the radio station. Um, but, you know, sometimes people ask me what is, uh, you know, what might have been the thing that I was most proud of when I was there. And, you know, it was a pretty um, tumultuous time in the Guild's history. And, and there were a lot of really great things that I feel like I accomplished with the help of a lot of other great people who were involved with the management of the station at the time. But the most important thing I accomplished was I got John B. Hill back involved with WBBR. And JBH is a legendary figure in the history of the Guild and the radio station. And he had been away from the station for a number of years due to some disagreements with previous administrations. And uh, Phil Shapiro encouraged me to get JBH back involved. And I did some outreach and I succeeded. And we got JBH back involved at that point. And, you know, he obviously remained involved with WBBR for many years, um, you know, until of course his unfortunate passing of, uh, 10 years ago. But, um, that was probably the thing I was most proud of was that uh, we got a key figure in the history of the radio station back involved with it. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about that and that particular conversation, because I know, you know, from personal experience, being a general manager, especially so young and as a student, it's never easy to manage conversations like that if you've never done them before. You have the opportunity to have applied all four years uh, of your time at Cornell at the radio station. I only did two. Can I ask what was the, the, the initial disagreements like that led to JBH not wanting to be so much with the Guild up until the point that you reached out to him? You know, I don't, I don't know if I know or if I did know. I don't recall. Um, I just think there was some, you know, personality um, uh, clashes with people who had been at the station, maybe not immediately before me, but in the years before I was there. And, um, you know, but I, I, you know, Phil really convinced me, Phil Shapiro really convinced me of how important it was to get him involved. We did have a couple of major um, technical initiatives that we were involved in at that time. So JBH's expertise was going to be really crucial. Um, you know, it was during my administration that we put on the 105.5 translator that had been discussed for years and years and years, and we finally got it done. And I'm not sure if I would have completely gotten it done without JBH's involvement. So there were, there were things like that. I mean, mm -hmm. even minor things like um, I was the general manager. Um, in fact, I was on the air the first time WVBR ever played um, music from a CD. Um, before that, it was all vinyl and carts. And we got our first CD player and JBH installed it in the studio. And uh, I got to play the first song that was ever played from a CD in WVBR's history. And, you know, that probably sounds pretty funny to any of the current students now, but that was a big deal at the time. So just, you know, having somebody um, in the chief engineer's role, role 
um, who really, really knew what he was doing, uh, was very important to us at that time. Do you remember what track that was you were playing? You know, I, I don't. Oh, my goodness. And that, it, it, I was thinking about it. And, you know, this is also during the top 40 era of WBBR. This is when we were known as FM 93. That so was probably something very commercial and very poppy that if I even said I played it, most people from the history of this radio station would tease me about it anyway. Say <laughs> that's a, a lost piece of history now. You know, how can we be certain that you were the first to play the CD if you don't even remember what it was? Good point. Good point. You're just going to have to take my word for it. <laughs> so let's track back even further. What were your first days like at BBR? Do you remember how you got involved? Was it a flyer you saw around campus? Somebody dragged you along? What were the first days like? Yeah, it's it's funny. My... um. One of my best friends from Cornell, who is still a dear friend to this day, um, we met as um, dorm, uh, dorm floor mates in U-Haul 5, which of course doesn't exist anymore. Thank God. But my friend Greg lived down the hall from me, and um, he and I were walking through the old noise center. I think we had probably just grabbed something to eat, and we saw a flyer for a training program on a bulletin board at WVBR, and we both went. Um, Greg flamed out. Um, he, he realized very quickly on that he didn't have what it takes to be a DJ. Um, he's done pretty well for himself. He's gone on to, for a very, to a very successful medical career. Um, but I stuck with it. We still actually tell jokes about some of the things he used to do on the old AM version of WVBR, which we used, used for training. Uh, but that's how I got involved. I did a couple of shifts on the AM training and the uh, program director of the radio station at the time, Kathy Jazzy, came in one day after I finished my shift and she said, you're all ready to go on the FM. And um, I was put on the FM doing overnight a couple of weeks later. And, you know, the one thing I always will recall from doing overnights was, you know, you would do the shift from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then the morning show would come on. And back then there was um, a guy at the radio station who was, three years, two, no, two years older than me, I think, John Taylor, whose voice has been used for station IDs on WVBR for decades. John was amazing and just had the most incredible set of pipes you've ever heard. And one day I was finishing up my shift and JT, as he was known, came in to get ready for his shift. And he happened to mention to me that when he was driving over to the station, he had listened to me and thought I was really good. And that's all I needed to hear. That was like, oh my God, JT says I sound good um, doing the overnight. And that was like, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that was it. Like I, I had arrived and little did I know I would go on to do a lot more at WVBR than the overnight shift. But that was, you know, a memory I'll always uh, keep. And uh, I've reminded John of it a couple of times over the years on social media. And uh, he still gets a laugh out of the fact that, you know, I. That meant so much to me that John Taylor thought I sounded good. Trying to get a recording of it now just to play freely whenever you would like, I assume is what you're reaching to about. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I've, I've got a box full of reel-to-reel tapes up in my attic that uh, I probably have to go through and, and digitize at some point in the near future, but uh, um, I have not heard that in a long time. So let me ask you this, because you were a DJ and overnight, even though it seems like you were a pro on the mic, anytime you were on 
I know that I don't necessarily always have 100% the best broadcasts every time I'm on the microphone. Is there a particular other memorable broadcast that you had that maybe was one of your best or one of your worst? But I think psychologically, we remember most our, our worst moments. <laughs> There's a couple that stand out, um, not necessarily because of what I did, but just were just really great memories. Um, I remember once um, Dr. Ruth Westheimer was speaking at Cornell. She was a huge star in the 80s because she was really, you know, one of the first people in, in media who was talking very openly about sex. And she became this national phenomenon and was hosting a syndicated radio show and, you know, was doing speaking engagements. And she had a speaking engagement at Cornell. And we had arranged for her to come to the radio station and do an on-air interview um, before her speaking engagement. And I got to do it. So that was great, like meeting Dr. Ruth and being able to interview her. I think Mark Bakoff might have referred to that um, in the podcast you did with him as well. Uh, but that was really cool. Um, another thing that stands out is we did something in the community once where we were raising money for, I don't remember the cause, to be honest with you, but it was some local charity. And what we did was um, I was put in a mock jail on the commons downtown and had to broadcast from this jail and people had to donate enough money. We had to raise enough money before Warren would be let out of jail, the morning oats on WDBR. And it was really cool because people would come down to the commons, they'd see me in jail. Um, it got coverage in the, in the Ithaca Journal and other local media. And we ended up achieving a really cool fundraising goal. So that was a, another one that stands out. And you know, probably the other one was um, when I did mornings in the summer, uh, John Edinger was my sidekick. He was the sports guy, but he really became like a comedic sidekick on our show. And he developed a character that, this is going to make me sound old, but he developed a character, uh, character that was based on Bill Murray's character in the movie Caddyshack. And he did this great impression of him. And so Carl became this recurring character on our morning show. And it became huge. Like people were calling. Um, we, would, we would be around town and people would come up to John and ask him to do his impression of Carl. And it went on for an entire summer. And eventually we just ran out of storylines. We couldn't think of anything else to do with this character, Carl. So we ended up having him volunteer to join the military. And that's why he was leaving the show. He, he volunteered for the military because he didn't want to get drafted. And I had to tell him on the air, there is no draft anymore, Carl. And, you know, he, he still ended up joining the military. And that's how we had to kill the character because we just had run out of ideas of funny things we can do with him. But, you know, when those kinds of things actually resulted in, you know, going to a bar or a restaurant around town and people actually knowing our names, that was just, you know, for the ego, just a, a lot of fun. And, some of my strongest memories of being on the air at DBR. I think that's one thing that I really appreciate from the past eras that we haven't done so much, at least in the modern history, is these impressions uh, of different characters and just for the for the fun of it. I mean, I think I heard uh, about doing a Kermit the Frog impression, <laughs> certainly doing other characters. I like doing um, a, a Lego Batman impression, but I never had a chance to do it over the year. And it's Lego Batman, can't be regular Batman, because for whatever reason, regular Batman doesn't stick with me. Um, I want to transition a little bit into talking about uh, how, you know, post WVBR and your career 
and lessons you learned, how you applied them. But I want to take a pause and ask you a couple of personality questions and see uh, what your raw responses are. I didn't clear them ahead at all, but we're going to see how you respond. Okay. Who do you think is most likely to sleep at the station? Um, in my era, it was probably John Edinger. After a night of going out and partying um, and having to do the morning shift, uh, he and I both ended up sleeping at the stations on multiple occasions, but I think he did it more than me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, uh, I've seen a couple of people sleep at the station before. I purposely have to go in early to make sure no one's there. <laughs> Needless to say, traditions don't die. Uh, who do you think is most likely to leave the studio and not queue up a song in time? Wow, that's a tough one. Boy, nobody really comes to mind for that, to be honest with you. We were pretty we were pretty professional in my day. People nailed that, even though I didn't master the art of putting on a long record and running across Linden Avenue to the old IGA supermarket and being able to buy something to eat and get back into the studio before I had to actually segment. Uh, what What was your favorite song to play? Since you can't remember, what was the first CD track you played, your favorite song to play during your shifts? Um, there was a big song at the time, the big song at the time by Elton John called, I guess that's why they call it the blues. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just had a personal connection to somebody for me. Um, basically, it was a girl I was dating when I was in Cornell. And whenever we had a fight or something, I would play that song and she would be listening to my shift. And she would know that I was uh, bummed out about whatever we were fighting. That's your apology song. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's fair. That's fun. Hey, you're making the most of your opportunity and resources to to communicate a message. I, I you know, hats off to you. And without breaking the format. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Without breaking format. One question that I've been asking all the other alumni that I think uh, I really love and they love and I want to keep it in here is, who was an alum you would have loved to have worked with that your years did not match with? Steve Marks. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know who Steve Marks is, Steve was one of the pivotal figures in the history of the station who led uh, the changeover in the format from classical to rock back in the late 60s. Steve was a long-serving board member. Um, and I'm kind of cheating on this answer a little bit because while Steve and I were you know, almost 20 years apart, um, I did get a great opportunity to work with him later in life. Uh, we served on the BOD together for many years. And then he became uh, a mentor of mine. I actually became a client of his company in, in recent years uh, before he passed away. Um, but boy, I would have loved to have been with him at the radio station knowing all the great things he accomplished. Yeah, I just know how highly respected he is. And I think we still use his sales training course today to work with some of the students who want to learn sales today. Yeah, just a great guy and highly respected. I still use it in my firm. Yeah. My, I, we, still use, we still use CSS resources at, at my firm as well. That was Steve's company. Well, I want to transition a little bit. I think this would be a great segue to talk about applying the lessons you learn at VBR and maybe the people that you've worked with and how that's translated to your career. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of what uh, the landscape of your career has been post VBR? Sure. So. Um, I left VBR thinking that I was going to be America's next great uh, radio host. Um, and that's the, the career track I intended to pursue, which was to be on air. And the very first job I got, um, which I was actually offered a couple of weeks before I graduated, was at a small um, adult contemporary radio station in the Utica, Rome market in upstate New York. I was the 7 p.m. to midnight DJ at that radio station. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I tell this story a lot because I, I, think, I think it's instructive to younger people about how sometimes some of the lessons that you can learn will come from some of the most unexpected places. And, and here's a, if you indulge me for a second, here's the story of that first job. So I go for the interview. It's at this tiny little radio station, again, in Utica. It's actually it was in Rome, New York, in the Utica, Rome market. It's like market number 160 uh, in Nielsen rankings or Arbitron rankings at the time. And the woman who owned the radio station um, was named Norma Eilenberger. Uh, I believe she's passed away since then. And Norma interviews me, and she has this very, even though it's upstate New York, she's clearly originally from the New York area. She's got a very thick New York Jewish accent. And she said to me when I applied for the job, she's like, why did your parents send you to Cornell? And I said, well, you know, my, my parents didn't really send me there. Yeah, they paid for it and everything, but it was my choice, and they encouraged me to do whatever I want. She said, let me get to the point. She said, did your, did your parents send you to Cornell so you could be a DJ? And I said, well, you know, they, my parents are really supportive and, you know, they, they support whatever I'm, I'm trying to pursue or whatever. And then she says, okay, let me try this a different way. What do you want to do in the long run? And I said, I want to be you. I want to own radio stations. And she said, so do you think you're going to become a, an owner of a radio station by being a DJ? And I thought about it and I said, you know, I, I really haven't given that a lot of thought. Um, I just want to be a DJ. I want to be on the air. I really enjoy it and see where that takes me. She said, okay, well, here's the deal. I'm going to hire you for the seven to midnight shift, but um, I'm also going to insist that you work 20 hours a week doing sales for the radio station. And I said, that's interesting. I said, I hadn't really thought about that. I had done some ad sales for WBBR and actually made some money doing it. And um, that ended up being really good advice because it made me realize that I needed to have a broad set of skills if I wanted to move further on in my career. Now, um, the irony of the story is that even though she gave me a job doing sales, they provided me with virtually no training they gave me the crappiest list of prospects you've ever seen. Um, and I never made a single sale working for the radio station. And I knew I'd kind of hit bottom one day when I went to call on a prospect and it was a retail store in front of a slaughterhouse. And the guy comes out to meet me and he's all dressed in white, this big, you know, uh, this, this big husky guy comes out and he just puts his hand out, nice to meet you, Warren. And he's like wearing all white and he's covered in blood. Yeah, because he's been working in the slaughterhouse, chopping up meat for his retail operation. And, you know, I didn't succeed in selling him any advertising. And uh, that's when I kind of realized I need to get the hell out of here. Um, it also had been, you know, in the back of my mind because I realized after I'd been at this radio station for about two months that I learned more about radio at WVBR than, I was than, I, than these people knew and that I wasn't going to grow and I wasn't going to move on. Um, fortunately, um, a BBR friend of mine, Jessica Edinger, knew of an opening at Arbitron in New York. And I got the interview and I ended up getting the job. And I ended up moving back home to New York and started my career at Arbitron and, and went in a completely different direction. I, 
you know, came to the realization I'm not going to be a world famous DJ um, and I'd be better off in the business side of the industry. And so I made the transition to the research side of the industry. I spent six years at Arbitron. I learned an incredible amount there. I also met my wife there, which was amazing. And, um, you know, that really set me up for a career in the research side of the industry, you know, which I've now been in for 33 years. So, um, you know, the, I guess the lesson, again, is just you never know where advice is going to come from. It'll come from the most unexpected sources sometimes. And if you're ever in a situation where you realize that you're not growing, you're not learning, um, you need to start thinking about moving on to something else. And, uh, you know, and the third lesson is be prepared to make those transitions. You know, I, if you would have told me when I was at CBR that I'd end up running a research company in the media industry, I would have said, that has nothing to do with what I'm interested in. Yet it's the best decision I ever made. No, I greatly appreciate it. Very valuable stuff there and great storytelling as well. I think everyone's going to appreciate the, the, the impressions and the, and the real enactment that you're putting on for here, us here. <laughs> I only have one final question for you, and it's kind of a, an opener, as in if you have any final comments about anything that we've talked about right now, any final comments for the students, for the alumni, if you want to get back a Mark Paykoff for making fun about your height in a previous episode, <laughs> your call. I'm leaving it up to you. I do not censor my guests on the show. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to get back at Mark Paykoff, but I, I'll, I'll get back at somebody else, and he'll appreciate this, and he's apologized for this to me this to me many times but it if, if you give me like two minutes i'll tell you a pretty funny story please go for it so when i was before i was the general manager and i was the this was even before i was the promotions director i was just an on-air dj um the radio station had an opportunity to do a big promotion with coca-cola and the promotion was we would get um people in ithaca to put uh, an fm 93 bumper sticker on their car and if we spotted it, they would win prizes and become eligible to win a car. We had, you know, traded for a car that uh, was going to be given away, a brand new Dodge Daytona. I remember it very clearly. But um, the only problem with the whole plan was that it required the radio station to have a vehicle that could go around town spotting people with bumper stickers on their, on their cars. Well, we didn't have any kind of station vehicle. But there was a member of the staff, a guy named Dave Van Epps, and Dave owned a van. And Mark Dembo, who was the general manager um, at the time, struck a deal with Dave where he agreed to let the radio station paint his van. We got it professionally painted, became the FM93 Coca-Cola Cruiser. It was this beautiful van with the FM93 logo, Coca-Cola's logo, the whole deal. And the deal with Dave was we paid the station paid for a bunch of upgrades to the van and painted for the paid for the painting job in exchange for the station being able to use the vehicle for a certain number of hours per week to seek out people with bumper sticks. And the promotion was a massive success. It was great. We gave gave away this car. The station was just going on all full all four cylinders at the time, which is not an appropriate pun. But anyway, um the problem was that the deal that Mark struck with Dave was there was never any, anything about what do we do with the van when the promotion is over? So Dave, when I became general manager, was leaving Ithaca. 
And he came to me one day and he said, hey, um, I'm leaving town. Do you want to buy the van? And we were not in a financial position to buy this van. I said, Dave, you know, I'd love to, but we don't have any promotions coming up where we need a van and we, we just don't have the money for it. And that was it. What I didn't realize was that there was nothing in the deal that was made with Dave about what would happen with the FM93 and Coca-Cola logos that were on his van. And Dave eventually sold the van to somebody in the community. And then a couple of months later, we started getting phone calls, complaints from listeners about our van, following them around town, like the guy who was driving it, hitting on women, all, I mean, just really bad stuff. And we had a really, we had a real PR problem on our hand. Like if there was somebody driving around a van with our logo and Coca-Cola's logo on it, um, harassing people or doing anything even worse than that, we needed to take care of it. So I eventually tracked down the guy and we had to strike a deal with him where we got the van repainted and the logos taken off. And um, the deal we made for him is, I believe it was Stellar Stereo, which was a huge advertiser at the time. We traded an awesome sound system from Stellar Stereo to be installed in the van if the guy agreed to let us have the van repainted. And uh, I just like to tell that story because it's, uh, it, it, there's a much longer version of it. But, you know, Mark Dembo, you still owe me one because you left that headache in my hand. <laughs> and we ended up getting it settled. But uh, it, was a little, it was a little touch and go there for a while. So, you know, make sure when you do those kinds of deals in the future that you think of all uh, contingencies of what can go wrong. <laughs> Dude, what's funny is I've heard the first half of this story. Of course, the beautiful part. Nobody told me about the second half. And, and now with Mark Dembo on the board, I'm going to have to ask him about it personally. That, that's hilarious. Yeah, you know, Mark, Mark knows. He, I've, I've told the story on the Alumni Facebook and Mark has you know, said, yeah, I still owe you one for that. I'm, I'm just using this podcast as an opportunity to remind him. He still owes me one for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Warren, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me on Adjusting Frequencies, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too, Christopher. Thanks for the opportunity.